I want to make sure that we continue to encourage younger women um, to lead and to not be afraid to change the world around them. Um, when they see something that's broken, change it, fix it, don't opt out. Women in Diplomacy listeners, I'm so excited to introduce you to you, Lauren Leader Chevet. She is CEO and co-founder of All In Together, and she's going to talk to us about her new book. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for having me. Your new book is titled Crossing the Thinnest Line, How Embracing Diversity from the Office to the Oscars Makes a Stronger America. Can you tell us about your inspiration for writing this book? I've been thinking about and working on diversity issues for a long time. I mean, you know, probably the last 10 years in a professional capacity, but really sort of my whole life um, in a personal way. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a very unique and diverse place. Um, in my childhood in the 1970s and 80s, the city was about 90% African-American. And even though I grew up in you know, a fairly homogenous, mostly white neighborhood. My school classes were always incredibly diverse. And my life experience was that I was sort of constantly surrounded by difference from my earliest friends and my earliest school experiences. And as I, you know, became a teenager and a young adult, those experiences became really amplified and more intense. And as the people and the friends around me uh, worked and struggled with their own identities, and I did as well, it became a really deep and intense part of how I came to see the world and understand the world was, you know, often sort of through the eyes of the experience of folks who, uh, you know, were African American or other minorities. And then I had some, you know, unique experiences in my own life, which I talk about in the book of you know, some very bitter experiences with exclusion myself. Um, and I really thought it, it just spoke to me in a very deep and personal way. And I also will say that I think my parents were passionate about social justice. And I was really raised to think a lot about the world around me. And uh, my mother was a very active feminist and, you know, really pushed me my whole life to think about how to make the world better and to relate to and care about the experience of those who um, were on the margins. So I'd been thinking about for a long time, the fact that as we've never really had a book on diversity that broke through to be part of the popular consciousness. We, I mean, the only exception to that really is like a lean in, right? Which sold 4 million copies but it's very specifically focused on women. And when I looked around, first of all, there weren't really any other, um, there really weren't very many women authors who'd written sort of big think books, right? You've got books like The Wisdom of Crowds by James Sirwicky and you know, obviously the kinds of stuff written by uh, Malcolm Gladwell and other sort of big thinkers, but you know, you're hard pressed to find a woman on that list. And I felt like I had something important to say. And, and, you know, the other piece of it is that it did. So after having worked on diversity issues in corporate America for a long time, I also sort of felt like there was a need to have in kind of one place, 
the big picture of really what's at stake for the country. Um, there's a lot of conversation in the workplace about the business case for diversity, but I don't really see us talking about that enough as a country. And, you know, I couldn't have known when I started the book that we would be in this incredibly intense, highly um, charged political environment. Um, but I had a sense that that could happen. And I wanted to talk about this big question of how can we do better? What's at stake? Why should we try? And what is it really going to take for our country to move past what has been just a perpetual source of conflict? It's also, of course, been a source of ingenuity and economic prosperity. But on balance, lately, it has certainly felt like diversity has been as much a source of conflict as anything else. And I wanted to ask some big questions about how can we do better? Yes, I know for me personally, I am looking forward to your book because I sense it's going to be a little bit of a, a state of the union on diversity in the U.S. I love the questions that you're posing. Can we find a path to unity? Will there be true LGBT equality? And when will the last barriers for women and minorities be broken? Can you give us a glimpse into what you think is the path forward? So I think there's, I mean, it's not one path forward, it's many paths. And part of what I believe is that it's a path that requires the participation and commitment of all Americans, um, regardless of background, regardless of race or gender or class. And the reason why that is so true is that part of what we have to get to is a place where every American has some ability to have empathy for and understanding of others who are different. You know, it's, it's not, we know there's a lot of science on bias and we know that it's not possible to eliminate bias. We all have them. Um, and despite a lot of the efforts lately to train people out of their biases, there's very little evidence that you can really do that. You can train people to have recognition of and understanding of their own biases and sort of to call attention to it, but you can't rid yourself of bias. And so if we know that to be the case, and we're in a climate where, you know, for instance, yesterday, there's yet another report of, uh, you know, really devastating, systemic, uh, proven racism in the police department of Baltimore. And that follows a report of a similar kind that came from Chicago a few months ago, and another one from Ferguson a few months before that. So if we know that we have police departments that are enormously challenged. We know that we have school districts around the country that are actually becoming more segregated, not less segregated. You know, 50 plus years after Brown versus education, we've actually lost ground. And there are still many districts, school districts around the country um, that are entirely segregated by race. Um, if we know that in the business world, we need more leaders who actually make a commitment to and follow through on a commitment to ensuring that women and people of color have the full opportunities of a meritocracy. I mean, all, and we know that we need an entertainment, uh, an ent entertainment world that is actually reflective of the nation. We need shows that demonstrate, uh, you know, really the full range of who we are. And of course, we need immigration reform that it makes it possible for us to benefit from the full talents of what diversity offers the country. So there's so many dimensions to what we need to do to do better. And some of them are really big macro things. They're policy issues, you know, like an immigration reform. And some of them are really small. And I and one of the ones that really spoke to me a lot and 
you know, I'm the parent of two African-American girls, uh, you know, as a white mother, one of the things that really struck me in doing the research for the book was the evidence that, um, first of all, that African-American families, minority families in the United States, black, Asian, Hispanic families, talk about race with their children um, at a much higher rate than do white families. It's something like 70% of minority families talk regularly about race with their children versus about 15% of white families. And the reason why that matters is that there's actually evidence that in the absence of conversation, in the absence of discussion, children will draw their own actually negative conclusions. That, that while many white Americans actually feel that by not talking about race, they're being colorblind, they're sort of, you know, not acknowledge, refusing to acknowledge that there's any difference. And that has, you know, really great intentions behind it. I think in the case of many, uh, what, many families, the reality is, is that there's that the children then draw the wrong conclusions from that. And so on a micro level, like we need to talk to our kids about race. And, you know, as a white person, I struggle with that. I mean, when my daughter comes home and says, mama, I was the only brown kid at X, Y, or Z, my first reaction is to want to not talk about that. But I've come to realize that I have to talk about that, that I have to take it on. I have to address it. We have to be open about it. It has to be diffused. And if I avoid the subject, it actually creates a kind of um, negative space. So, you know, it's actions that are big and small. And what I try to do throughout the book is paint a picture of those, you know, what we need to do on a big sort of macro policy level for the country, but then also on this very personal and human level, what can we each individually do to make a difference? Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your personal insight into this issue. That's why I think that this book is going to be a great read for women in diplomacy listeners, because when I hear you listing off all the ways that we still have to improve and all the areas in which we can work on this, to me, I, I'm picturing women everywhere perking up in their grad school seminars or when they get to choose a topic for their senior thesis these are the areas in which uh yes we are challenged but also where we can go to work and we can make a difference there is still so much work to do i guess for me that just feels motivating so thank you for for laying it all out yeah and you know look i think I mean, we all have a part to play, and I talk a lot in the book about the importance, the important role that especially white men have to play, particularly because the power structures, all the power structures of our society still, you know, lie with white men. But I also do think that women have a unique and important role to play. And, and one of the reasons is that I think we're able to relate to the experience of uh, discrimination in a way that others might not be. I mean, whether or not we, uh, you know, kind of no matter what's happened in our lives, most women have at some point experienced something that um, made them recognize that they're not, they're still, women are still not fully equal in our society. You know, whether that's a sort of micro slight from, you know, some guy at, you know, in college Republicans, or if it's, you know, something that happened on a sports team. I mean, we, I think many of us can really sort of personally relate to the experience of exclusion or of not being um, fully included. And what I hope is that we will, all of us, take the personal experiences we've had with that and translate that into a deeper sense of empathy and passion 
for helping and in supporting and engaging with others who have similar experiences. You know, one of the things that I think is so incredibly important, especially in the workplace, is that we have to be willing to talk about our experiences with our colleagues and be able to acknowledge or at least give our colleagues, particularly our minority colleagues, in my case, as a white woman, my minority colleagues, the opportunity to, to talk about and express their experience and to be honest about that. Um, and to help us work through the ways in which we may be actually perpetuating bias or perpetuating barriers. And I think, you know, we all, that's why I say that we all have a job to play. We have a role as, you know, I personally have a role as a, you know, pretty privileged, you know, upper middle class white woman with all of the sort of benefits that come with that in a society like ours. Um, I have an ob obligation to make an effort to ensure that I use some of that privilege on behalf of others. And then I also do feel that my you know, minority colleagues have an obligation or an opportunity to be honest and to help me um, better understand their experience and to call out uh, when there's some inequity that they think is unfair or to help shine a light on those issues or to help me think more deeply about how I can work through uh, some of my own biases. So, you know, I really think this is something that, you know, we all have to work on. It's, it is, I think the burden probably lies more heavily with white America. Um, but I do think that our, you know, minority fellow citizens, you know, have work to do. One, one of the things that I talk a lot about in the book, which is, you know, one of the more controversial pieces is about the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. And when I wrote that part of the book, it was sort of before, frankly, some of the most recent, you know, kind of ultra, you know, big time backlash. But there's been a backlash against Black Lives Matter almost from the beginning. You know, several years ago, Glenn Beck uh, held a huge All Lives Matter rally in Washington that was really directly aimed at sort of discrediting Black Lives Matter. And, you know, of course, we all recognize that all lives matter. But by focusing on that, and discrediting the validity of the Black Lives Matter movement, we are fundamentally um, denying the very issues that Black Lives Matter aims to highlight, which is that there is in fact systemic racism that continues to exist, as we saw, as I said earlier, from reports around, like for, from, for instance, what's happening in American police departments. There are now 20 plus American police departments that are under what's called a consent decree, which is that they are basically under federal supervision for having violated the civil rights of minorities in the communities that they're meant to police. There's no denying that there are some unique issues that African-Americans face in this country. And by, you know, the whole all lives matter backlash is really meant to undermine that. And that is unfair and that is wrong. And that is one of the things I talk about in the book, that if we really want to make progress, you know, can we find a way to recognize and understand and empathize with and uh, try to solve the unbelievable pain and marginalization that is felt by a significant number of our citizens? Whether you agree with it or not, I believe we have an obligation to work to ensure that no American feels that they are second-class citizens. That is antithetical to the values on which our country was built. So those are the kinds of, you know, th this is what I mean when I say that we all have a part to play, no matter who we are, where we come from, or what we look like. So I'm a longtime listener of Foreign Policy Magazine's podcast called The Editor's Room. And recently they discussed some fascinating data that by 2020, the 18 and under population is going to be 
majority made up of what we previously thought as minorities. And then that that will be the same case for the entire country by 2044. And one thing that was discussed in this podcast episode, uh, specifically by David Rothkoff, is that this slow change is disconcerting for white males because it changes the power dynamic of America. And essentially, I think you and I are in, are in the same business of wanting to arm the next generation with the tools and the information that they need to succeed in this new space, this new diversity, particularly encouraging women to find their voice. I'm very curious, what do you think of that reaction about white males but also, what advice do you have for young women for navigating this space? Well, so yeah, so those are, you know, there are a couple of different things there. I mean, I think there's no question that some of the intensity of the um, emotion that we are seeing in particularly the current presidential cycle is related to the changing face of America. You know, but one of the points that I make in the book is that I really think that anger has always been there. When we passed the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s, when we legislated uh, the integration of the South and the end of Jim Crow, we passed laws, but I'm not sure that we really did the work as a nation of sort of truth and reconciliation. And I'm not sure that we really did the work to try to disrupt and break generations of racism in the country. And, you know, 40, 50 years, 60 years into that major change, you know, we sort of see a perpetuation of some of the same anger um, that was really there at the heart of our civil rights conflicts in the 1960s. And, you know, all you have to do is sort of look at the electoral map to see how that bears out. And you see that consistently, you know, the Southern states, the one, you know, as Johnson said, he knew he was going to lose the South for a generation and he was right. You know, those dynamics persist today. And part of what I call for in the book is that if we do not make a much more serious kind of national effort to address what are, you know, hundreds of years of, of conflict. Um, we're just going to continue to recycle the same issues. They're going to look a little different. You know, Trump looks very different than did the, you know, anti-civil rights leaders of the 1960s, but the messages are in some ways very similar. And he has played on the fears and the anxieties of largely white men who are very uncomfortable with the changing face of the nation and the changing global economy. And that's another piece of it, right? I mean, the globalized world is a huge part of it. The interconnectedness of the, uh, through the web, uh, the interconnectedness of global commerce, all of those things play a part. The good news is, is that I'm incredibly optimistic about the future because millennials are so different. Um, you know, millennials, and there's 92 million of them, right? It's the largest generation in history. Um, 92 million millennials in the United States who've grown up in the most diverse, uh, in the most as the most diverse generation in history, also the most well-educated generation in history, and the most connected generation in history. And so when I sit down with groups of millennials, 
I mean, the conversation is just so different. And, you know, part of why I think it's going to be very, very difficult for any candidate, Republican or Democrat, to win the White House without um, being highly inclusive of minorities, of gays and lesbians, of women, is because of that changing demographic. And the reality is that it is the majority now of certainly younger Americans, regardless of their political affiliation, who support you know, equal rights for gays and lesbians, who support equal pay for women, who support a more open immigration system, who don't see the same kind of lines of race, because in many cases, the categories of race, the sort of standard EEO categories of you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, don't even apply in the millennial generation where we see sort of record uh, multiculturalism and intermarriage and you know those lines are blurred never mind even just the like the trans factor right that there's you know where facebook has 70 something categories for gender so i think you know i'm optimistic in that sense because i think that this next generation sees the world very differently and unfortunately i think many of the you know very some of the white men in this country who are trying desperately to hang on to uh, the past, you know, are on the wrong side of history. Um, but it's they're not going down without a fight. And I think we're seeing that uh, really come to a head in this election. Mm-hmm. So you asked me a second question, though, about young women. And, you know, as I said, like, I do think I am really optimistic about uh, younger Americans. and. I do think that there's some extraordinary things happening in this country. I worry that young women are abdicating, in some cases, their voice and not uh, working hard enough to stand up and fight for the things that matter to them. But that, I think, is also changing. And I do see more and more young women who who see themselves as leaders, who are breaking barriers, who are unafraid of um, challenging the status quo, who are working to change the world around them, whether that's through social entrepreneurship or through volunteer work or through activism. Um, And so I actually think there's a lot of really extraordinary things happening for young women, and I wanna see that continue. Um, I I wanna make sure that we continue to encourage younger women um, to lead and to not be afraid to change the world around them. Um, when they see something that's broken, change it, fix it, don't opt out. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about in this election cycle about whether or not millennials, for instance, will vote and whether they'll show up at the polls. And, you know, in recent years, they have not uh, shown up in big numbers. Um, And that's a real problem. So, you know, we need millennials and younger Americans, because now Gen Z is coming up and is going to be voting soon. Um, You know, we need them to not opt out of the structures around them because they think it's dirty or broken or not worth their time to participate and change it because you can't change the game unless you play the game. And I want to see more, you know, young women do that. Just one great example, um, my dear friend, Erin Schrode, who some of your listeners may know, who was the youngest woman ever to, you know, run, she would have been the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. She ran in the, uh, in California this last cycle, she lost. But she started a really, really important conversation. She's 24 and she just went for it. And she was totally unafraid of the fact that she was challenging an incumbent Democrat and everyone told her she was crazy and she just went for it. And, you know, I think she inspired a lot of people. 
and drove some change. And I think that's amazing. And I, I hope I see more women, more young women um, step forward in those kind of unafraid, unafraid ways. I know previously you mentioned Lean In. And when I was looking at Center for American Progress data, it says that women are achieving 60% of master's degrees in this country. And my concern is that we are qualified, but then that qualification, the knowledge, the skills isn't being used. What do you think is that reason? And is this still a problem or are we doing the best that we can? No, it's definitely still a problem. And by the way, it's been the case for a long time that women are getting 50 plus percent of the college degrees in, you know, outperforming men in almost every field and now getting the majority of graduate degrees. You know, one of the only exceptions to that is in um, is in engineering. You know, there's been a lot of um, conversation about women in STEM, but that's actually a misnomer because women are actually getting the majority of the biology and life sciences degrees. They're now becoming the majority of um, doctors. They're just not going into engineering and computer science, which is something obviously we need to deal with. But that said, across almost every field, it's been a long time already that women have been getting 50 plus percent of the of the college degrees. I mean, that was true even, you know, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago when I graduated. And now we're starting to see this big sort of issue, which is how is it possible that we've got such a massive pipeline of women entering the workforce and yet they're not penetrating the top rungs? And there are lots of reasons for it and it's been heavily, heavily documented, but, but there are a few things. First of all, don't let anyone tell you it's because women don't want it. Um, it's generally not true. Women have the same level, if not higher levels of ambition than do men and that's been measured many different ways. By the way, the most ambitious uh, driven group of American women are actually black women. Black women have registered sort of higher levels of professional ambition than any other group. So it's not that they don't want it. And it's generally not that they're dropping out of the workforce to have kids either. I mean, that tends to be actually a small number of women that do that. There's slightly larger numbers of women who take a few years off, but very few, relatively speaking, women actually, of college educated women actually fully drop out of the workforce. The biggest issue really is some of the entrenched um, systemic bias in the promotion process and in the process of how people got identified as high potential. And most of all, in the sort of dimension of relationship capital. And that is to say that at the senior levels, your relationships and your sponsorship and your reputation among senior leaders becomes exponentially more important. You know, when you're more junior, it's a fairly straightforward meritocracy. You get, everyone gets promoted basically on the same criteria. But as you get more senior, that becomes more amorphous. And there becomes more focus on the soft skills, on your presentation, on, you know, do you seem like a leader and how do you speak and how do you look and all of those things. And most companies don't do a very good job of taking, of creating objective criteria at the senior levels. They try, but they generally don't do a great job of it. So, you know, there are definitely some really deep entrenched challenges at the top of the house. But I think as more women are actually pushing forward, as more companies are actually working to disrupt those uh, biases, and I think they are, um, you know, I, there are dozens and dozens of companies that I've worked with that are working very hard to try to root out bias in the promotion process, who are working hard to make sure that they're promoting the right share of, you know, an appropriate share of women, that they're not missing people. Um, I think it's starting to change, but it is going to take, you know, women pushing 
and insisting on and working for those top jobs and frankly questioning when uh, the process is broken. And I, I, I still think we're not doing enough of that. Um, it's not easy uh, politically inside companies to do that. Um, I also especially think that we need more male leaders asking those questions as well. And until we have you know, more male leaders you know, insisting that we have um, you know, a fair representation of women in the promotion pool, that we're ensuring that we're not leaving people out who deserve to be on that list. Um, you know, it's gonna be hard to change. But the, the more senior you get, the harder it is to really pinpoint what it takes. And, and that's been a problem. Lauren, can you summarize your own professional growth and experience for us? Oh, I don't know if I can summarize it. It's been such a meandering path. I guess, um, you know, I guess what I would just say is that I've tried at every stage of my career to balance, um, you know, doing well financially, which, you know, I've always needed to do because I'm, I've been the primary breadwinner in my family for a very long time. Um, with doing something that I really feel passionate about and that I have um, a deep, deep commitment to. And um, I've, I've tried to balance those two. And I think I've generally done that successfully. And, you know, I think that when you do something that you love, um, it makes it much easier to do well. Um, and I think it is possible to do well as well as doing good. Um, my nonprofit stuff is pretty recent. Most of my career has been in the for-profit world. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not, I haven't been doing things that I was passionate about. And I've worked really hard to try to give back um, to the country and, and give back to the world as part of what I do. And that's been very deeply rewarding. So I would just say that I really try to put my values in action in all of my career choices. Um, and that has served me well and is something that I'm committed to continuing to do. How can we stay in touch with your work? I know personally, I love following you on Twitter, um, but also tell us about All In Together. Yeah, so I mean, definitely. So laurenleadershipay.com is my website. We're about to launch a new phase of it, which will have a lot more content and um, would love to have people follow me there as well as on Twitter um, and on Facebook. And, uh, and then certainly, you know, follow us on All In Together and please go to aitogether.org and register for our newsletter. Um, we send out all kinds of interesting stuff. We're gonna be doing a lot more programming this year. Um, lots more sort of public engagement work. Uh, so stay tuned. And I also have a YouTube page where I post a lot of my, um, a lot of my media. Uh, so, so please follow me and, and feel free to reach out um, at info at aitogether.org. And I'm happy to connect with your listeners. So for a closing, closing pitch for why to go out and get the book? Well, closing pitch to go out and get the book is that I think, you know, we all are in need desperately of a, of a, of a, of some optimism and hope for the country right now, because it is such a challenging time. And I hope that people will find my book uplifting and inspiring. And so that's certainly one reason to go buy it. And also to, of course, support the, the starving writer that I am. Uh, and, uh, and because I think that, you know, I think I know that many American women and many of your listeners, you know, really care, care deeply about these issues and want to make a difference. And I guess my closing words would be, um, we all matter and we can all make a difference. Uh, it's a question of, of, of will and commitment. Uh, and when we make the commitment 
and show the will, great things can happen. 